Welcome to Fick Focus, where Bloomberg Intelligence fixed income, credit currency, and commodity strategists and analysts discuss their short and long-term views on debt markets and issuers. Now, here's the Bloomberg Intelligence Fick Research Team. Welcome to the Fick Focus Podcast, Macro Matters Edition. My name is Ira Jersey. I am the Chief U.S. Interest Rate Strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence, the research arm of Bloomberg LP. With me today, we go off campus to Ben Emmons. He is Portfolio Manager and Head of Fixed Income for New Edge Wealth. Ben, thanks very much for coming back on Fick Focus. Hey, Ira. Great to be back. Thank you for having us. So let's first talk to you. Talk about what you do, what your what types of money you manage. Um, I, as head of fixed income, it's obviously fixed income, but uh, you know, talk us uh, talk to us about the mandates that you actually uh, help manage on a day to day basis. Yeah, it's a very broad mandate actually, because um, uh, in a wealth management firm, it's it's actually all asset classes that you want to touch on. Uh, in this case, fixed income. So. I look after private credit, I look after external managers, and we have internal strategies. And then those external internal strategies have a wide breadth, meaning uh, merger markets, high yield, credit, structured credit, treasuries, mortgages, basically the entire index. <laughs> uh, and um, yeah, it's a great mandate. Uh, you know, it's a fast growing firm and uh, very excited. So let's talk about how you start your analysis, and so when you're constructing your portfolios for your customers, what, you know, talk us to us a little bit about how you start that analysis, and and then break down maybe what you're thinking about today in terms of an asset allocation within the fixed income landscape. Yeah. So, in general, what I try to do is to first look at um, a, a broad asset allocation. We 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 have top down views. And try to say, okay, within the asset allocation we currently have, which is includes alternatives and, and equities, what's the place of bonds there really? You know, what's the volatility risk we're willing to take, the duration risk, um, against our views on on the macroeconomies. That's actually kind of a basic way of approaching it. Um, but once we have sort of determined this is the place of fixed income within the broad asset allocation, I start drilling it down into um, what would be the appropriate asset allocation of fixed income based on what we think interest rates not only are, are going, but also including uh, volatility. Because as we're experiencing just over the past month, the volatility isn't really going away. There's a lot of uncertainty where we're, where we're going to end up. Um, some people have views that we're going to end up right back where we came from in the pre-pandemic. Even the IMF is a view now. Um, whereas I'm more of the camp, we are with New Age Wealth. Of now we, we have shifted the paradigm. It's, the inflation isn't so easily to cool off with with the rate hikes that we've done so far, and it's going to keep this uncertainty in in fixed income markets back and forth. And the portfolios that I then construct is to look at risk factors and say um, what are the better risk factors to manage that volatility in particular. Um, now and I do think that you maintain quite conservative in that in that respect in terms of credit um, exposure as well as, as, as rate exposure. So drilling into risk factors, essentially using a, a tracking error model, so to speak, to manage those risk factors, that's really the back the, the backbone of the portfolio construction. 
So let's talk a little bit about the, you know, kind of the 800-pound gorilla right now in the fixed income market, and that has to be the Federal Reserve. Um, obviously, the Federal Reserve has tightened monetary policy very aggressively. There's been some angst in some sectors like the banking sector, obviously, with SVB and Signature Bank um, both failing in, in large part because they mismanaged their interest rate exposure and, and the uh, P&L around those interest rate exposures. But, but talk to talk to us about your outlook for monetary policy, both here in the United States and also since you have a global mandate, um, you know, are there any interesting global monetary policy aspects that you're considering right now? Yeah, I think in terms of the, of the Federal Reserve, um, it turns out that Silicon Valley bank crisis isn't really changing their minds. Uh, we're now learning this pretty, quite quickly that the Fed has looked at this that although there's some impact on bank credit, right, it's the data that we all have to look at now uh, every Friday, um, it isn't meaningful enough uh, to change their minds about where inflation is and where it's going. Uh, in fact, they're getting a bit impatient, but it sounds like that inflation isn't cooling off quick enough. And so my, our view is that they will not only do a rate hike potentially in, in May, but may do another or another one because I think that the, 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 the flank of, of Ballard and Waller and, and several others have to have the basically the, the, the strongest vote within the FOMC uh, with this view that they really want to build an insurance with rates on the upside. Uh, just like pre-pandemic, you, you build an insurance against deflation with rates on zero or below. In this case, it's insurance and rates on the upside, so to speak, meaning rates get, do get high enough that you really start to impact inflation more materially than what we've had so far. And so if that's the case, the yield curve cannot fully normalize. Right? It, it, it will not return to a positive slope immediately. And, and secondly, it, it will continue to drive volatility in the markets because they will continue to speculate on, well, Fed, that's interesting that you're approaching it this way, but you're going to have to reverse that restrictive policy quite quickly once you reach it and because uh, it likely will be restrictive enough uh, and if you take that to global um, there's definitely a difference here at work right so the, the, the emerging markets have moved well beyond and well well before the fat um, and are really in they've already passed in, in various of countries and are at a restrictive policy which is starting to impact inflation in those markets. I'm thinking particularly Latin America. Um, but in Europe, we have a very different dynamic going on. Uh, very fortunate with the, the, the mild winter and uh, that that had the effect that it had on gas prices. But at the end of the day, the energy shock is still reverberating. It's actually still reverberating through the food, food supply chain too. And that's problematic, right? You can tell the food, food inflation is, is really sticky, like for as in the example of the UK. So monetary policy there too is in the position, it must be in a position to try to slow the economy down as much as they can with caveats that, you know, you can't tighten policy to bring in food inflation down. It's going to be really difficult, right? So you're going to end up there too with rates higher than where they are now, at least on the short end. Um, and... Therefore, the same ideas here, you, you still have pressure on, on, on rates in developed markets, whereas in emerging markets, it, it, I think it is a stage of like, they have reached high enough rates that it becomes an interesting opportunity to invest. 
So, so then talk a little bit about then the shape of the curve. So you alluded to it a little bit um, there. Um, if the you know right now we're pricing for the Federal Reserve to um, increase rates one more time and then uh, and then cut interest rates starting uh, late in, late this year and then uh, into next year. Um, it, it sounds like maybe you're a little bit skeptical that the, that the Fed's going to be one and done. Um, so, so what happens to the yield curve in that situation? Because obviously, you know, you look at the two-year versus the 10-year curve, and we're, uh, as we're recording this on April 20th, we're about uh, 60 basis points inverted. We had gotten all the way down to only 40, and we had been as high as, as 100 basis points inverted, or I guess as low as 100 yeah. basis points inverted. So, so do you have a particular call on the curve in the U.S.? And then, uh, you know, are there... Are there risks that um, that, that uh, in emerging markets and, and some of the other markets where, where you noted um, that maybe curves uh, act differently in, in those jurisdictions? Yeah, I think that's a really good point that acting differently. I think what we had during the March episode, that, that sharp re-steepening of the yield curve from going literally on that two tenths from negative 110 almost to, to negative 40 was, was bringing all the rate cuts that the market expects to happen at some point in the future, just all bringing that forward really quick. Uh, with the view on that a banking crisis that we experience is a tipping point for the economy. Right? You, you do get a moment that, okay, this is going to really change things where we are currently. And it turns out not to be the case, where we're drifting away from that negative 40 basis points. So I think it's the U-curve call is about when exactly do you think the, the rate cutting cycle actually starts um, we sort of know, and the Fed has put it in a Doppler release, given the market actually some guidance on rate cuts in the future. It's 100 basis points that they think they can bring rates down in the future. But the start, starting point of that is what keeps that yield curve in that sort of dynamic of disinverting and, and inverting again. So to make a call is not simple, uh, but I, I think it's going to stay inverted, not easily back to a normal upward sloping yield curve. Um, until we really do have seen particularly stickier core measures really moving down. I'm really talking here about you getting those numbers in the, in, in, at 3% or below, right? uh, that you then see a bigger reaction in the yield curve. So you, you, you can continue to be positioned in the very front end of the yield curve. That gives you a lot of reinvestment opportunity. Um, but you, you can't really, I think play let's say that two five spread or two seven spread is that's a, that's a difficult spread to play i think uh, whereas on the longer end of the yield curve it's really a game of about when we get more signs of inflation truly cooling off the rate cuts will be brought forward and that will obviously give you price return in, in longer maturity bonds uh, specifically 30-year bonds so let's talk about other asset classes. We, we've hit you know, a lot on, on uh, government bond markets and the general rates market, but let's talk about other parts of fixed income. For example, are there any sectors in credit that you're particularly keen on or, or um, trying to avoid? Um, and you know, obviously, you mentioned some of the banking angst that we had in, in March um, in the United States, but are, are there sectors where you see some value and, and you're dipping your toes into at the moment? Yeah, one, one sector that stands out from the crisis is, is, the, is the bank preferreds or the bank perpetuals. Um, now, there were two things happening there. We, we, we had Silicon Valley Bank, they've issued bonds like that, and that deposit uh, bank run uh, that affected 
the credit of those of those of those types of banks against the Credit Suisse story of using bondholders to um, you know basically have a quick merger with UBS and write them down, write the bondholders down. <clears throat> and I think the preferred market with those financials of those perpetuals, which are decent component in, in, the, in the investment grade index and even to an extent in high yield <clears throat> those look obviously really attractive in terms of absolute yields and and and, uh, and spreads but there's a, a clear risk there um, and you can tell if you look at investment grade corporate bonds and you look at financials you can really see the how the market is pricing but what they consider what it considers weaker regional banks at wider spreads versus the stronger um uh, stronger banks that are, are tighter, and that gap between those two is widened even further. Even that it looks like the banking crisis has eased at this moment, or at least the market perceives it that way. But then the preferreds are interesting because it's correlated with what happens with the regional bank index, uh, and and I'm talking about preferreds and perpetual bonds of of big banks like J.P. Morgan and Bank of America that have gotten all those deposits in actually been the beneficiaries of that crisis, um, that the spreads on those perpetual bonds haven't materially narrowed, uh, even though it looked like the crisis is fading. And then lastly, as we know, what Credit Suisse did with its AT1 bonds, right? Those, those bonds have specific clauses that they could be written down in the event of a financial distress. Um, that hasn't... I mean, it had put that market in, in, in a really uh, tailspin for a period of time, but that's now started to recover with banks that are, can issue those bonds that have, do not have those clauses in there. And that could potentially then be an opportunity, I think. They, they issue a lot of dollar bonds. So saw a Japanese deal out the other night. There will be others coming to the market again. And so I think there's an opportunity in that space. And despite all the risks that are out there about credit and, and banks, um, I think you can play the bank sector in credit uh, with these, these individual opportunities. And you don't only uh, only uh, buy actual um, you know securities in the public market. You also delve a little bit into private credit a bit. Talk about private credit. What goes into you know those less liquid instruments, and also you know how do you analyze some of those um, privates? Given that you have more limited information than you do with say large public companies in the investment grade space. Yeah, and that is certainly a challenge. Right. I, I, so I look at, at several private credit managers and have you know, their 10K, 10Q filings. And that's the data that I really have. Unfortunately, part of the syndicated loan market, the way it has changed since 2021 was when the big banks started to withdraw from that market because of sitting on too much, uh, you know, hung debt, as they call it, right? Almost like a hangover debt from a, from a leverage buyout uh, deals that, that didn't work out so well. And the private lenders have stepped in in the void and attracted more attention as a result from, you know, call it like small to mid-sized companies across the United States that have a fair bit of growth in terms of earnings. Most of these companies are not listed, uh, many of them at least, but they are generating, you know, anything from 50 to 100 to 200 million of, of, uh, of EBITDA. Um, and the, the loans that are, that are uh, issued for those companies are senior loans 
uh, like bank loans. And so they trade a spread over, over LIBOR and they do quote unquote trade. And there's some uh, movement there. And you can actually, uh, from a particular private credit fund, I can pull up all the loans on Bloomberg, for example. I can I can analyze it and you have to use other software to analyze the, uh, the specifics on it. And we have to dig in some, and, and these private credit lenders are generally helpful in terms of providing more data on on the on payments, right, that they received on those loans, and you get a bit of an idea of what if, if the borrowers are in good standing, um, which tends to be so far the case. And yeah, the syndicated loan market has, has performed quite well so far this year. I mean, the, the, the total return is somewhere around five five and a half percent. So one of the better performing part of what I call alternative fixed income. Uh, I think in part because a lot of companies that took out those loans are have good credit and have and are not experiencing anything that looks like a recession or the risk thereof, and therefore are able to, um, yeah, to, to, to pay down their loans quicker or, you know, stay in good standing. So the returns on those are, are high. You, you are looking at yields that are anywhere from 85 to, to 15%. In that market, and um, it's actually an interesting opportunity. Maybe I'd, I'd like to talk just a very little bit in the last couple of minutes we have here about the switch that just occurred in the last week from um, getting rid of LIBOR, moving towards SOFR as the general rates benchmark. You, you mentioned yeah, a lot of privates and obviously the loan market. There's large portions of that that are floating rate where LIBOR used to be the base. Now it's going to be something else. Um, you know, What's your thought on that transition, how it's gone, and, and are, you, are you worried that the lack of credit component in SOFR is going to shift the way that people invest in some some of those um, floating rate products that, uh, that that come out there, particularly in the the loan space. Yeah, that's true. That the, that you know, if you if you looked at LIBOR, you had a perhaps better indication of bank credit risk in that than SOFR. Uh, you know, it's quite specific, but that's. Uh, I think it all comes down to that. Um, we know the issues from LIBOR and the way it was it was it was established in in the in the during London hours really and um, and SOFR doesn't have that right uh, yet SOFR may be more closely reflecting to what the Federal Reserve is doing in terms of policy. There's a much you know smaller spread between SOFR and Fed funds futures I know than LIBOR. Um, those things, I think, matter for the market. Uh, the transition, by the way, has looked to be really smooth. There, has, there was an Armageddon scenario that we put out a number of years ago of if you're going to switch over trillions of dollars in derivatives from LIBOR to another benchmark, you're getting all kinds of clearing and other types of real specific issues that, that you, you've written about too, uh, but that didn't turn out to be so much the case. Um, I think, though, it will be an accepted benchmark so far from here. It just will be more closely linked to what the Fed is doing. Therefore, whatever margin you get over so far will be more dictated to by, by, the, by the change of Fed policy, perhaps, than, than that LIBOR transmitted in the past, given that's a global uh, rate benchmark, right? But so far is actually, I would say, not, right? So more domestic. So I think those are sort of some differences there between the two. I don't think that it will deter investors from buying loans or bonds 
that are spread over over silver instead of LIBOR. Great. Uh, Mr. Emmons, thank yeah. you very much for coming back on Fig Focus. Thank you, Ira. It's great to be here. Thank you. That was Ben Emmons, Portfolio Manager and Head of Fixed Income for New Edge Wealth. We're now going to be going to our next segment, the interest rate intro with Will Hoffman. Will, what question do you have for me about the interest rate market today? Hey, Ira. Thank you for having me as always. I have a question on your favorite topic, the debt ceiling. So everyone seems focused on the risk case, which is understandably so. But I was hoping you could break down a little bit of what the aftermath of the debt ceiling would look like should, ideally, our base case be realized where the where Congress raises the debt ceiling. Um, can you kind of walk through what the Treasury's playbook will be on refilling their coffers? Yeah, that's an excellent question. Actually, a question that the Treasury Department asked dealers in their quarterly refunding agenda um, survey. So the, the, the question becomes, how does the Treasury Department refill, firstly, its extraordinary measures, which it's been using since the debt ceiling was hit earlier this year. And then secondly, you know, how do they refill the Treasury general account? That's the the Treasury Department's checking account, effectively, that they have with the Federal Reserve. It's called the TGA, broadly. Um, so, so a couple of things in that regard. So firstly, they immediately top off all of the extraordinary measures, because all of that is non-cash, um, basically accounting that w- that occurred. So they wind up filling up the um, the thrift savings plan and the uh, exchange stabilization fund and and these other um, th- these other retirement funds that effectively they've been un- that have gone unfunded for the last couple of months. Um, so, so first they do that, right? So so suddenly they have all these extraordinary measures again. And then number two, they, they probably start to issue a whole lot of T bills once again. So I would uh, suspect that they would increase four week, eight week, three month, and six month bills by uh, 20-ish billion dollars each per week. Um, that would increase the net issuance of T-bills of between 80 and $100 billion uh, every week for a couple of weeks. So um, in fact, we're in the process of redoing our refunding primer. And, and part of that, um, I have to put in there my assumption of what T-bill issuance will um, will be in June and July uh, once the, the debt ceiling is raised. And, and I do think that $100 billion a week of net issuance over a matter of, of four to six weeks would not be um, would not be unheard of, and that would increase the the cash in the the TGA up to about half a trillion dollars, which is the level that the the government seems to want to keep things because they want to have enough cash in the um, in their checking account in order to pay a, a coupon maturity or two in case there's you know some kind of technical glitch that goes on and and um, they can't do a refunding announcement you know they they can't issue issue debt for a day or two. Um, so, so I, I think that that there will be significant increases in in the amount of T bills outstanding, um, you know, once the debt ceiling is is uh, is done, and I think that there'll be pretty good demand for those assets. Um, from a practical standpoint, and and just thinking about this from the Federal Reserve's liability side of things, which people have, are more focused on now than they have been. Um, in in some some past experiences, especially with the Federal Reserve doing quantitative tightening. It's possible that the uh, th- that as the TGA goes up, that the reverse repo facility ends up going down because 
now all of a sudden there's uh, money market mutual funds um, move money out of the reverse repo facility and into the uh, into T bills that are now being issued be just because there's more supply of them and that they're um, th that they're available. Uh, Will, was there anything else related to that, or, or question maybe that I that you know spurred in your mind as I was talking? I think you nailed it. I, I had a follow up on what the impact to bill pricing once the scarcity is gone, um, but you stuck landing on that one as well. So thank you <laughs> very, for that. Very good. Thank you, Will. Uh, on behalf of Will Hoffman and Ben Emmons, I've been Ira Jersey. If you have an idea for a topic or someone you'd like us to speak with and talk about the fixed income landscape or currency or commodities in the Macro Matters edition of the Fixed Focus podcast, just hit us up on the Bloomberg Terminal. Until next time, be well. <laughs>